So we continue on in the study in Luke's gospel this afternoon. Luke was a first century doctor who traveled with the apostle Paul. And in his two-part series on the life of Jesus and the spread of the church of Jesus, what we know as the gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, we see Luke's careful and reliable histories about what happened surrounding the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this afternoon, we come to a pivotal point in Luke's gospel. So as you read through a book, whether it's a book of fiction or or history or whatever, there will always be these key moments, right? These key moments that set the stage for the remainder of the book. And right here in our passage today, we have such a moment. And so let's dig in. Don't have an introduction for you today. We're just going right to the text. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, this passage breaks down pretty neatly into three parts, and we'll take those three parts as a structure of our study together today. So there in verses 18 through 20, we see Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. In verses 21 through 22, we see Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission. And in verses 23 to 27, we see Jesus' call. Jesus' call. Identity, mission, call. So first, identity. So Jesus' fame has been increasing and spreading throughout the region of Galilee and beyond. And as his reputation has grown, it's still a topic of conversation, just who exactly this teacher might be. So three weeks ago, when we were in the first part of Luke chapter 9, we saw the ruler Herod himself hearing about Jesus and being perplexed at the the conflicting reports as to his identity. Who's this Jesus? Who is this one the crowds clamor for? Who is this one who teaches about the kingdom of God? So look at verse 18. Here we see it all over again. 
Now it happened as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Jesus initiates this conversation topic with his disciples. They've been out and about, and they've heard from the crowds the speculation as to Jesus' identity. And so Jesus asked them, what have you been hearing? And they answer with those exact same three options Herod heard back in verses 7 and 8. Maybe he's John the Baptist come to life. Or what do you think? Elijah, the prophet? Perhaps another prophet of old. There's no lack of speculation about who Jesus is. But here in verse 20, Jesus cuts through their guessing games and he asks the disciples a straightforward question. But who do you say that I am? So, I mean, these disciples, they've been with Jesus for a while now. They've seen him heal. They've seen him teach. They've seen signs and wonders. Certainly, he's like no one else they've ever seen. But Jesus is asking and prodding. And do they have an insight greater than the crowds do? Folks, this is a key moment in Luke's gospel. After this, we're going to see in chapter 9, Jesus start to embark on a new station, a new stage of his ministry. But first, there's this key question and a key answer. Who is Jesus? I I like to imagine this this scene as kind of like the scene in a a movie where the music is is building and, and then the camera kind of zooms into Peter. Perhaps there's like beads of sweat on his forehead or something. And then the music just cuts And all you hear is Peter's voice, and it's kind of got an echo thing. I don't know. That's just me. And he answers, the Christ of God. Christ is that Greek title, meaning anointed one. The Hebrew equivalent is the Messiah. So Peter looks at Jesus and says, you're him. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the anointed king promised in the line of David. And Jesus doesn't correct him because he's dead right. In Matthew's account of this uh, time, we see Jesus say, God has revealed this to you, Peter. See, all throughout the Bible, there have been these promises of future salvation. It begins all the way right after the first sin in Genesis 3.15, when God is pronouncing curses, and yet there's this glimmer of hope amidst the curse that there will be a descendant in Eve's lineage who will destroy the power of the serpent, the devil. And that promise, as the Old Testament continues, just takes on more and more definition, more and more depth, until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God makes a covenant with King David that he will bring a descendant of David in his line to sit on his throne in power and forever. The kings of Israel took their office through anointing. And there's this idea then in the Old Testament, hints of an anointed one to come, a king, a Messiah who will deliver God's people, who will rule with justice and righteousness. And here, Peter says, you're that guy. Luke Luke is, is pulling threads from various points of his gospel account thus far, and he's kind of knitting them together into a remarkable tapestry in this confession of faith. I mean, remember where we've been. 
Back in chapter 2, we saw the angels proclaiming to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is who? Christ the Lord. And then in chapter 4, we read of Jesus casting out demons, and we read, And demons also came out of many, but Jesus rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew that he was who? The Christ. And now Peter and his disciples get it. And they see the same thing the angels and the demons have said. It's a remarkable moment in Luke's gospel. Jesus is the king. It's wonderful news. It's breaking news. And what do you do with breaking news? You share it. You text it to a friend. This is something the disciples say, let's go. Let's herald throughout the land. You'd think they'd be like, oh, right, let's go. I mean, we've just gone earlier in chapter 9, right? We've gone throughout the land. We proclaim the kingdom. Let's go proclaim the king. He's here, the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus, send us out again. That leads us to our second point, which is Jesus' mission. And this is where things get surprising. See, Peter and the disciples have made an important and monumental confession as to Jesus' true identity. But, and this is important for the remainder of Luke, just because they know his true identity doesn't mean they understand what he's come to do. Just because they get his identity doesn't mean they get his mission. Look at verse 21. And imagine you're reading this for the first time, if you, if you aren't. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. I mean, if you're reading that for the first time, wouldn't you think like you're reading it and you're saying, and he strictly charged and he commanded them, oh, this is it, this is the next commission. He's going to command them to tell everyone to go throughout the land and proclaim the promised king had come. But no, Jesus swears them to secrecy. Tell this to no one. I mean, they'd just been on a tour. Just this huge, like, revival tour to proclaim the kingdom is at hand. Repent. But now they have this even better news, this more specific news about this kingdom they've just been heralding, and, and, and the one they want to make much of is telling them, shh. He's, he's telling them, make this hush-hush. Why? I mean, presumably they want to make him known, and presumably Jesus is worthy of being known by everyone. He's worthy of all the honor that will come to him from the Jewish people as they recognize him as their long-awaited Messiah. So what's going on? I mean, have the disciples actually gotten this wrong? And and Jesus knows it's wrong, and so he's kind of like, I'll I'll run with this a little bit, but... Or is Jesus being bashful? Verse 22 is the answer. And it's a shocking one. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This regal Messiah the Jews had long awaited is now standing before them, his eager disciples, and he says, yes, I am he, I am the Messiah. No, don't tell anyone because I have to die. It must have sounded like a non sequitur to those disciples. It could not follow 
that this king would die. Not to them. Later in Luke, we'll see Jesus explain how the whole of Scripture pointed to this. Sure, there were hints. Think of Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Hints in the Old Testament that the deliverer would suffer. But the disciples are stunned. In fact, if you go and read Matthew's account or Mark's account of this story, I mean, what does Peter do? You remember? Peter, who just made this great confession of faith, hears Jesus' prediction of his, his suffering and is so taken aback that he's actually kind of angry and he rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? That's how emotional Peter is getting. In Matthew 16, Peter kind of takes Jesus aside. And he says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Remember what Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter has gone from sheer wonder to sheer horror. Why is Jesus speaking like this? You know what? That right there, that's the reason. The way Peter reacts, that's the reason. That's the reason Jesus is calling them to silence, because Peter will be the first of many Jews to respond just like that. Many are going to hear the word Messiah, and they're going to hear political power, final revolution, and perhaps they'll, they'll run after Jesus and seek to elevate and honor him, put him in a place of political power. Jesus has not come for that. He's come to carry out the mission he has from his father. And that's a mission not ending in a palace, but on a cross. And so Jesus, in this amazing moment of identity revelation, immediately takes a few steps back and cautions his disciples, tell no one. Church, we get a glimpse here of Jesus' heart for us, don't we? I mean, Jesus deserved all honor and all glory. He totally deserved all crowds in existence to rush at that very hour to his presence, kneel before him, prostrate, and pay him homage, worship him, adore him. He, he was worthy of each disciple sprinting away from that place immediately and shouting to everyone within listening distance, he's the anointed one. Go get him. Go see him. But instead of saying, go on. He says, tell no one. Why? Because he's going to get glory, but it's glory through a cross. Church, do you see Jesus' commitment to your salvation? Do you see his unflagging, unfailing, persevering devotion to his Father's plan to save you and me? The wording here in verse 22 has the sense of inevitability. Jesus is saying, this is a done deal. It's necessary that I must suffer. The disciples are in shock. They're horrified. But little do they know that Jesus is determined to suffer, not just as a martyr, but as their substitute. They want glory for him and glory for them and glory for Israel right then and there. But Jesus has got a greater glory in store, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. 
Mike McKinley, the pastor of the church that sent us out here as a church plant in 2016, has written a little double commentary on Luke. Here's what he says on on that verse. He says, there is incredible love that stands behind Jesus' statement. Nothing outside of God constrains him or forces him to do anything that he does not wish to do. But the necessity of Christ's suffering is rooted in God's free decision to take away the sins of his people. And it's here, church, that we see how deep the Father's love is for us, vast beyond all measure. I mean, what kind of Savior stoops low like this? Utter humility to save those who are rejecting him. I'll tell you who. It's a Savior who has come not to save from temporary political oppression, but a Savior who has come to absorb divine wrath for his people. That's who. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you know the feeling of guilt. Everyone does to some extent. We regret things we've done or neglected to do. We see the collateral damage of our wrongdoing impacting those we love. Do you know the feeling? Friend, the Bible makes total sense of that feeling. It says we are in fact sinners, each and every one of us. And we've rebelled against the God who created us. We've built our own kingdoms making our lives and those around us revolve around our passions and our desires rather than our kings, our creators. And since God alone is a ruler of us and the ruler of all living things, the ruler of the universe, the one who deserves all worship and adoration, our self-worship, our self-rule is rebellion against him. It's what the late R.C. Sproul called cosmic treason. We've committed high treason against the king. And that treason is the source of our guilt. But friend, the the king against whom we have committed high treason has made a way for us to be saved. He did not leave us in a state of rebellion, but he provided a way for us to escape. And he did so wonderfully, amazingly, by taking the punishment on himself. One author says, we are saved from God's wrath by God's grace. Only God can save from himself. And that's what he's done. He sent his son to go to the cross and there take the full guilt and the full penalty of the sin of all who would trust in him. So friend, you can either bear your guilt on yourself for the rest of your life and the rest of eternity or you can place it on the back of Jesus Christ. I beg you to do the latter. Trust in Jesus. And church family, now on the other side of the resurrection, I think we can read Jesus' words a bit differently. Because, see, the secret's out now. And so everyone now must be told, right? Right? So perhaps we could adapt Luke's words for us this afternoon and hear this in verse 21 for us. And he is strictly charged and commanded you, Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, to tell this to all nations, languages, and peoples. To tell everyone we can that he is the Christ. 
And so here's a point of application for us. Are we doing that? Are our lives marked by proclaiming that news? Not just generic testimony to the fact that we're moral people, we're a religious person, not just vague hints that you're a Christian or you go to church or Bible study. Those things can be fine, but, but more than that, news. News that Jesus is the one who can deliver from guilt and sin and death. Do you speak that news? Our final point then is the call of Jesus. See, Jesus has come to be a suffering Messiah. And so it makes sense then to see here that his call to his followers is of the same thing, the same kind. They're to suffer with him. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to all, so these are the disciples kind of in the foreground, probably the crowds behind them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the way to follow a suffering Messiah. And it follows from what we were just talking about, right? With, with self-rule. Because if we're to submit to the king, if we're to submit to the Messiah, to God's anointed one, we must deny our own Messiah complex, our own private kingdoms. We must deny our own sinful rebellion and our own self-rule. It just makes sense. One scholar says, if we would make Christ our master, we must first remove ourselves from that position. See, it just makes sense. You can't serve both. We must turn and submit to the king who has come to lay down his life for us. Jesus says we must deny ourselves, deny our self-rule. Friends, this isn't government overreach. This is the king saying, I own you. I must be all you worship, all you need. I require everything from you. That's what it means, and that's what it takes to follow after me. He tells us to take up our cross daily. What was the cross? The cross was known to the Jews of that time as a public display of submission to Rome, leading to death. It was sort of this public showcase of Roman control. And so Jesus is saying, your lives also ought to be lives lived publicly in submission to me as your king and death to yourself. That all sounds kind of gloomy. But Jesus continues. He says in verse 24, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is going to save it. See, Jesus actually has a wonderful life in store for those who would deny themselves and turn to him. He's saying, so if you try to live in your own self-rule, you're going to lose it all. But if you live for me, if you die to yourself and live to me, you're going to know life like you've never known it before. You're going to know joy like you've never experienced before. See, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously quipped, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But that's not the end. 
The Christian life is not a tragedy. It's a comedy in the old sense of the word. It has a happy ending because when we are come to bid and, and die and deny ourselves and take up our cross, that's not the end. It's a doorway to life forever in Christ, the life we were meant to live, the life we've been designed for. So the world in our sin will constantly beckon us, saying, accept yourself and find life within yourself. But Jesus comes and says, has that worked out for you? Here's how to do it. Deny yourself and find life not from within, but from outside yourself, from me. That's what it means to follow after Christ. Just as he is the suffering Savior who had come into his glory after rising again, so we as his followers trace those same steps. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. That's our path. See, as Christians, we don't get to determine what level of self-denial we're kind of up for this week. We don't get to look at the calendar year and say, this is going to be a stressful one, so this is how following Jesus is going to look and it's going to work for our schedule. Jesus says, you follow me every day. Every day, you deny yourself, die to your own self-rule and live to me. I promise you, you will find in that daily dying life for every length of days, forever, for eternity. Now remember, this is not to earn God's favor. Jesus has earned that for us on his cross. But in the new life he gives us, he calls us every day to die to self and live to him. He says in verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The answer is obviously nothing. The answer is the only way to invest for your future is to actually divest yourself of yourself and find your all in Christ. That will lead to glory. And Jesus is super serious about this. I think this is probably what hit me the hardest as I thought about this passage in preparation. Do you see verse 26? Jesus is serious about how we live for him. He is serious about this call to self-denial and pursuit of him. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's kind of scary. And we shouldn't quickly empty it of its punch. For those who are ashamed of Jesus and of the words of Christ, they will be found to be actually rejecting Jesus himself. And so when he returns, they will not be found among his people. For they have rejected him. And so they will be rejected by him. That's meant to be a sobering thought. Part of our new life in Christ will be this persevering attachment to Christ. An attachment that will be evident to others and held dearly by us. Does that mean we're never going to fail? Does that mean we're never going to be embarrassed to follow Jesus? 
No. But it does mean that the shape of our lives as Christians will be one where we are ready, increasingly ready, to put our names on the line with Jesus no matter what's coming down the pike. It means that when our employer begins to crack down on our beliefs, we're sticking with Jesus. It means that when our family members or neighbors crack jokes and start kind of not inviting us to things and, and causing rumors and gossip about us, we're sticking with Jesus. It means that even when our lives are in danger, we're sticking with Jesus. That's the only way to follow him. The call to come to Christ is a call to come and die. But verse 27, which is kind of enigmatic and is hard to understand in some ways, is actually a super helpful encouragement as we close this afternoon. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, there's lots of different views about what this means. Obviously, we in 2021 haven't seen the kingdom of God come in all its fullness yet. Jesus hasn't returned yet. And so, what? Like, is Peter, like, in a bunker somewhere in, you know, the Middle East, and he just hasn't died yet, and he's waiting for the kingdom of God? No. What does Jesus mean? Well, I think there could be multiple right answers, right? Or there could be multiple good options. But I think probably he's either pointing to, to the transfiguration, which will come next week, Lord willing, this kind of demonstration of glory of the king that the disciples will witness, some of the disciples. Or maybe he's thinking more broadly of his resurrection and ascension, by which he's kind of bringing in and ushering in the kingdom. Right? But the, those particulars aside... What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you take up your cross, you die, but guess what? Glory's coming. The cross is for now. Glory is forever. And so the question then is, Christian, are you in on that? Are you in on this suffering then glory trajectory? Are you dying to your old self and living to Christ daily? Are you seeking to be unashamed of your Savior before the eyes of the watching world? Are you ready for the suffering as you follow the suffering Savior so that you can then be ready for the glory as you embrace the glorious King at his return? Each and every Christian in this room will have a life described by those two words, suffering and then glory. And it's worth it. I love how one of my Old Testament professors in seminary, Peter Lee, has put it. He says, the question we need to wrestle with is this. How much do we really want to know Jesus? If you think about it, I dare say that what we really want to know is the glory of Christ. We think of the great blessings we have in Jesus, and that's what we want to know. But when we think about the suffering of Jesus, that's something that doesn't really catch us as something terribly exciting. But he says, if you have one, that is his glory. Without the other, that is his suffering. Then you will never really know Jesus. 
And isn't that the joy of the Christian? To really know Jesus? Only by knowing Jesus completely in his suffering and his glory, only then will we know the whole Christ. And in that sense, only then can we truly have joy unspeakable. You take away the Christ-like pain, and you take away the Christian's joy. Because they will never really understand and know Jesus. Church, isn't it amazing how even in a promise of suffering from Jesus... He's still promising us the good life. The life of forever knowing him, living in his presence, suffering than glory. It's the Savior's path. It's ours as well. Let's do it because glory's coming. Let's pray. Lord, we give our lives to you. We ask that you would convict us where we're trying to have it both ways. Trying to follow our own self-rule and still ascribe to you as our king. Lord, we know that that's a miserable and impossible way to live. So help each one of us to go all in with you. And show us that the path of suffering ends in glory. And so give us joy as we await your return. Amen.